Hello, and welcome to The Main Question, a podcast series from the University of Maine. I'm your host, Ron Lisnett. In this episode, we continue our conversation with Paul Majewski, director of UMaine's Climate Change Institute. During the past 50 years or so, he's led several dozen research trips to the world's most remote places, Antarctica, the Himalayas, the Arctic among them. In part one of our visit, he shared with us the adventure of those travels and the science that has come out of those treks, research that has shed new light on the way everyone views the changes happening to our planet. Drilling ice cores from glaciers and living in a tent for weeks at a time, often at 50 degrees below zero, makes for some exciting times and a few scary moments as well. In part two of our conversation, he shares more tales of his adventures. He also talks about how his view of life as a researcher was radically shifted by what he found. He discusses the unexpected parts of his work, namely dealing with the media coverage and politics of climate change, and what he sees as the future for this highly charged topic and how the human race will cope with it or not. You underwent a transition uh, as, as a young scientist. You thought maybe the science you were going to do, uh, as you alluded to a little bit, it was going to be a, a bit of a passive endeavor. Mm-hmm. But then you uh, uh, came across this, um, you know, this abrupt climate change concept. And uh, you, you talk about a gradualist <coughs> viewpoint. And that, that changed. And it, did, did that change the way you look at everything you do? Absolutely. Um, I I think that um, we have always uh, assumed, I I believe as humans, uh, most of us, that things will always be the way they are now, and they always have been that way. Uh, And and it would be nice if they were, because it would be much easier to live your life. Uh, But of course, when it comes to things like climate, while we are in pretty dramatic control of what's happening today, even in the natural system, the, the climate system is way more powerful than we are, and uh, we need to be prepared for those sorts of things. Um, it, it, it's, uh, I always like to say that the, climate, the middle name of the Climate Change Institute is change. Uh, and uh, a lot of people, we can all deal with slow change that we know is coming, but all of a sudden when the change can be very, very fast, uh, you've, got to, you've got to be able to respond to it quickly. And, and that requires uh, the kind of thinking that uh, didn't necessarily exist in the climate science world before, uh, but that certainly exists, for example, in the business world and in the military world. Things can happen very fast. Uh, and in the world of rescue and a variety of other things. So, so suddenly the climate world uh, was plunged into the fact that what you're looking at today is not necessarily the way it was in the past, and it won't necessarily be that way in the future. And guess what? This can all change easily within your lifetime, and it has. When you were talking about your, your job and what you do, the, the words policy, politics, media, PR – you didn't mention any of those, but are those uh, skills that a climate scientist now almost has to be familiar with? The classic belief or understanding by many academics and certainly by the public was that you know, a- academics uh, churn away and they produce some potentially important information that might have cha- uh, impacts over a long period of time, or they may be studying things that are considered to be esoteric, which one hopes at one point will be, will become important. Um, but how that's translated to the public uh, is not has not always been, let's say, 20 years ago, a priority. It's absolutely crucial now. I think it's very important for uh, uh, 
uh, scientists to translate what they do into understandable terms to the public. What we're doing, uh, if a scientist doesn't understand what they're doing well enough to let other people understand it, then they probably don't understand what they're doing. They need to be able to talk about it in, in ways which don't imply vocabulary, in ways in which concepts can be understood. Because you, you want the public to understand it. You want, obviously, policymakers uh, to understand it. And as importantly, you, wanna un you want them to understand why this is important, how it impacts them. And there are two simple ways in which climate change impacts everybody. Uh, and, um, amongst, you know, after you think about the relationship in your family, uh, and the two, these two are very heavily tied to that, the next sort of generic the, the first two generic things I think that most of us care about are our health and, for want of a better term, because it happens to rhyme with health, wealth. Uh, you know, if you were guaranteed that your health and wealth would be great for a long time or in good shape, that would be very, very satisfying, and it would help you improve the quality of your life. These two things are dramatically impacted by climate change. Uh, and people are not only beginning to realize that it will be that way in the future, but that it has always been that way and is happening even faster and in more ways. Uh, as we uh, have more and more dependence on global uh, situations, everything from the economy to politics to how we conduct our policy, we realize that the underpinning for many of these things, the, in my opinion, the greatest security issue of this century is climate change. A and that is in no way to demean uh, economy, uh, uh, conflict, all these things, m and many of these are underpinned by, by climate change. This is, the, this is the big thing that generically we all ought to be thinking about. And I, <clears throat> I love um, uh, certain types of movies, and one of them is Independence Day. The world, suddenly we get attacked by aliens, uh, and I don't mean people from other countries, I mean people from other planets, uh, and the whole world gets together uh, to deal with this issue. This would be the perfect solution. This is what, of course, the IPCC and, and other um, large organizations have tried to create, and they've gone a long way, uh, but it needs a lot more than that. It needs um, federal government, it needs state government, and it, the other big thing it needs, which it is getting a tremendous boost from right now, are grassroots organizations. They're springing up all over our country and all over the world. These are NGOs, private organizations, just small public organizations. Uh, uh, groups that, that aren't even uh, formally organized, and it, it's just phenomenal to see that happening. I imagine over the years you've run into a lot of skeptics that say, oh, this is a natural cycle, or it's volcanoes, or we have no effect. So what is the best, most compelling, easy-to-understand argument that climate change is uh, in large part driven by humans? Well, I, the first answer to the question about dealing with skeptics is, yeah, like a lot of other climate scientists, I've dealt with skeptics for a long time. <clears throat> and my standard line, and I meant it at the time, was we need to thank the skeptics because they forced us to think about things more carefully, define what we're doing. We're way past that now. Um, the, uh, if you take a look at the sort of the, the very best that the skeptics have to offer right now, you can compare two documents. Uh, one comes from my community, the climate science community, it's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, 
immense report that talks about, uh, that definitively says the climate is changing and that humans have had an immense impact on it. You look at the, the definitive report coming out of the, uh, the Heartland Institute, which is primarily supported by the Koch brothers. Theirs is called the NIPCC, the Non-Governmental uh, uh, Panel on Climate Change. And it, it's a pathetic document scientifically. It has partial quotes uh, from uh, papers that, that had nothing to do with what they were taught, with what was uh, implied by the NIPCC. Uh, it has a minimal number of figures that are taken out of, uh, uh, out of context or out of journals that are not very well respected. And to me, that's the answer. This is the difference between the scientific community, which provides facts, and the, uh, the skeptics community, uh, which basically have no facts uh, to base what, uh, what they're talking about. Can you pick little holes in, in pieces of, of climate science? Of course you, of course you can. But uh, you, know, you can pick little holes in anything. The, the reality is this is happening. Uh, so it's become terribly politicized. Um, and and I, I like to compare the climate science issue, the political issue, with the law. Uh, I wouldn't want to go to court, and I'm not saying that this doesn't happen. I wouldn't want to be involved in a court case in which facts uh, didn't actually lead to the outcome. And that's the way science is. It's facts. Um, and. We need to be a fact-based society. We can't be a society in which somebody suddenly wakes up and says, I don't believe this, and I need to, you need to do something else because I think I know what's going on. What's your opinion of how this is covered in the media? I'm a tremendous advocate of the media. The media is extremely powerful. Uh, they control what we drink, what we eat, and all of much of what we, uh, of what we think. Um, I think the media has gone through cycles. Um, I, I think there was a period... Um, where they were uh, you know, sort of, uh, they felt that uh, climate and environmental change were important to report on. And then there was a period when they felt that politically it wasn't good for them. And I'm not talking about all media, I'm talking about some media. And, and I think it's great to see now that the media is, uh, is beginning to turn around. Uh, you know, the media says we, we provide to the public what they want, but it's not quite that simple. You know, the media controls to a large degree what people want. We have a free society in, people, in which people can say whatever they want, um, and that's great. Uh, it's the underpinning of, of, our, of our country. Uh, but at the same time, you don't have to give equal voice to something that is believed by 99.90% uh, of the people knowledgeable about this. And the media did that for a long time. I've been fortunate to be involved with literally dozens, if not in excess of a couple of hundred different media organizations. I've enjoyed my involvement with every single one of them. Uh, in almost every single case, uh, the, what I felt was important that ought to come out came out well, maybe not always as, as adamantly as I felt. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, it's critically important that the media uh, use their strength, their clout, uh, to demonstrate uh, and educate people about this very important problem. And I think uh, to, the, uh, to the tremendous credit of media, they, they have really done this and they're doing it better than ever. 
Let's talk a little bit about the adventure of all this. Um, t talk about some stories you'd care to share, mishaps, animals, near misses. I mean, I'm sure you have a lot of uh, things that have happened that you didn't expect or uh, uh, good and bad in the field. Yeah, uh, you, you can't go into a remote place. And I'm not saying that other people don't have a lot of adventures too, but you can't go to a remote place the way we do. Uh, literally on the edge of civilization and not have a lot of adventures. You know, some of the adventures turn out to be uh, fun adventures. Uh, not having everything you necessarily thought you have with, with you for any number of reasons and, and making do without it. Um, this is what just happened on the installation of the highest automatic weather station uh, in our Everest program. Some of these adventures are being in storms um, of 100 miles per hour that last for 17 days. Um, you're pinned down. There's not very much you can do. It doesn't matter uh, who tries to pull you out of there. They can't and, and they shouldn't. Uh, and you make what, your way through it. it, it uh, it's an experience that, that we will never forget. Um, some of these adventures end up in awful situations. We lost Gordon Hamilton uh, a little more than two years ago. Uh, because he was in a very remote place and, uh, and unfortunately ended up in a bad situation and, and was killed. Um, and we struggle as hard as we can uh, to create safe situations. Um, uh, Gordon, unfortunately, uh, ended up in a bad situation. I think many of us are, are, are very proud of the fact that we've had bad situations, but we've never, you know, we've never had terrible things happen to people. Um, so there's a very, you know, there's a, there's a real balance between wanting to have some adventure, which is why many of us do this, and, and having so much adventure that it's not a good idea. Uh, but it's always on the, uh, on the edge of that. Um, there's tons of things that can happen. Storms, uh, fires, uh, travel uh, mishaps, which of course can happen to anybody. Um, uh, miscommunications, lack of communication, uh, not having all of the resources, for example, food. We've run out of food in the field because of any number of situations. Uh, and it goes on and on and on. What's the coldest you've ever been? Oh, we, we've, we've lived outdoors at minus 50 centigrade for wow. long periods of time in, in, a, in a tent that had two pieces of Egyptian cotton walls uh, that, that basically protect you from the outside and in which you can only use the stoves minimally because you don't want to poison yourself with, with carbon monoxide. That almost happened to you, right? It did. Uh, but we, 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 uh, because I have been fortunate enough to be almost poisoned by carbon monoxide, uh, almost blown to pieces by storms, I get smarter as time goes on, and we prepare for this. Um, and we think about it a lot. Uh, and uh, I love adventure. I love the idea that you know, we're pushing ourselves a little bit physically, that we're pushing ourselves uh, emotionally by, you know, spending time in places uh, and seeing, watching the students, uh, in some cases for the first time in their lives, uh, leaving places that, the, the place where, they, where they've lived their whole life. And it's amazing the way people uh, rise to that and, and the way uh, it changes them always in a positive way. Uh, this is probably an unfair question to ask, but I'll ask it anyway. Any favorite places, and are there any projects or places that are left on your bucket list? 
Well, favorite places, I love Antarctica. It, to me, it's like a second home. Um, I, I keep trying to convince my, my wife to move there. She's pretty adventurous too, but uh, it, it's not a realistic place to live. And you can't even just go and live there. I love it though. On my bucket list, wow, you know, I've been to so many places now. Uh, there are places that were on my bucket list that I keep going back to. Uh, I think my biggest problem right now is that uh, I'm probably, in terms of having expeditions, probably getting close to the end of my expedition bucket list. I've been doing this for um, 51 years. Uh, you know, this last year I was up at 18,000 feet for long periods of time twice, climbing up there. Uh, I've still got some more to go. Uh, but, you know, my bucket list is, as I think about it, uh, is really helping uh, the next generation to uh, realize their bucket list. Uh, I've gotten to tons of places, um, and uh, I, I'm really excited about uh, seeing the way they view uh, where they go, what they do with the information that they get, and the experiences that they have. So just as we wrap up here, I know we appreciate you taking all this time with us here, but what future priorities, what, what do you... Where do you see this going? Are um, and, and just you know, in terms of the science and in terms of uh, our civilization's ability to to deal with this, mitigate it, uh, you know, prepare for it. What uh, if you had a crystal ball? What what do you think you might see? Well, I, the first part of the answer is, uh, you know, I, I'm a great believer that you ought to one ought to um, focus primarily on things that one has some possibility for uh, actually realizing. Uh, I'm not going to use necessarily the word control because I don't control things. But uh, for our institute, I, I want to see us keep pushing more and more to understand how things will change in climate and the environment in general uh, and what the impacts will be and, and how, uh, how we help other people who know other things to mitigate this and to look for uh, ways to create better quality of life. Uh, I I truly believe that by 2100, we will experience at least a three degree centigrade rise in temperature globally. It will not necessarily be distributed evenly around the planet. There'll be places where it's much warmer, places where it's not as warm. I full well believe that we have already entered a period of instability in our climate system as of the last couple of decades, and that this will continue. Uh, and as a consequence of that instability, we need to think much more carefully about uh, where we plan having things, uh, how we proceed for the future. Uh, I'm very optimistic about uh, the world that I think will evolve in the next 20 to 30 years. I think we will have more renewable energy, which is the smartest thing in the world we can do. Because when the sun, sun stops shining and the wind stops blowing, we're going to have a lot bigger problems than climate change. Uh, these are resources that we as humans and the ecosystem have survived with for forever. Um, I'm optimistic about renewable energy. I'm optimistic about better jobs from the future, tied not just to renewable energy, but to all of the things and opportunities and ways of life that we might have in the future. I'm optimistic about a world in which we have better air quality, better water quality, uh, and as a consequence, many of the diseases that we are uh, that are emerging uh, and going into places that they haven't been in before, like Lyme tick coming into Maine. I'm optimistic about ways in which we can reduce this. 
uh, and ways in which we understand how to deal with it, with it better. Uh, so I, I'm really optimistic about the future, despite the fact that I understand that there's going to be a lot of change and it's not going to be change that we necessarily want. Well, we could go on for three hours. Uh, there's so many uh, more questions and things we could talk about, but we do appreciate the, the time you've uh, taken to, to share your thoughts with us. Thank you, Ron. Thanks. Thanks for checking us out, and this is our final episode of Season 1 of The Main Question. We'll take a brief hiatus around the holidays, but Season 2 is already in the works. There are so many great stories to tell about the research and creative work happening at UMaine, and we're excited to dig into those stories and share them with you. We'll be back in the second half of January 2020 with Season 2. In the meantime, you can check out all eight episodes of Season 1, which can be found in a bunch of places. iTunes Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a note at mainquestion at main.edu. Until next time, this is Ron Lesnett. We look forward to bringing you Season 2 of The Main Question.